and we would decant it out into a, a, a police station, which is a police station yard with um, white tiles against the wall and concrete on, on the other side. And they started pushing us up to one side and pushing lads with their arms and legs against the wall and running the truncheons up their inside legs. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to episode 40 of Cold War Conversations. Today we have a joint operation where myself and Shane Whaley from the GDR Radio podcast and Spybury podcast speak with Peter Miller. Peter is an award-winning journalist who was named Foreign Correspondent of the Year for his reporting on the dying days of the Cold War. Now, before we get going, I'm sure you'd like some exclusive extras, including previews of future episodes, as well as content that didn't make the final cut. If you do, just head over to coldwarconversations.com and click on the Support the Podcast menu option. Thank you very much for those listeners who are already supporting us. I'd also like to thank our latest reviewers in iTunes, Jamie NYC, Neil Gusman, and Mac East Second Floor Studios for their five-star reviews. Please do add reviews in iTunes, otherwise known as Apple Podcasts, as it really helps spread the word and helps us get guests. Now, back to today's episode. Peter's book, The Berlin Wall, My Part in Its Downfall, is described as a witty, wry, elegaic account of his time as a Reuters and Sunday Times correspondent in Berlin throughout most of the 1980s by The Spectator. And the Sunday Times described it as part autobiography, part history primer and part Fleet Street gossip column. Miller casts aside the old chestnuts and sets about reporting on the reality of life under communism in bare Stalinist apartments, at hollow party events and over cool glasses of vodka, the gravedigger come hippie, the Stasi seductress Helga the Honeypot Kirtle the accordion player whose father had been killed at Stalingrad and the petty smuggler Manet who has been separated from his parents by the war. We welcome Peter Miller. Peter, thank you very much for uh, joining us on the uh, podcast. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask was, and this is before we, we dig into your uh, book, which is uh, great, by the way, really enjoyed that. Um, but can you share with us why you decided on journalism as a career and how you got into it? It's a bit of, yeah, it's a funny story, really. I mean, um, on my last year, uh, I'd read French and Russian at Oxford, and on my last year, um, I started thinking, well, that's great, but what am I going to do when I went to see the sort of advisory people? And they said, how about advertising? And I thought, you're kidding. Um, but in my year in uh, Paris, I'd spent a year in Paris um, as part of my French course. Um, I'd gone hitchhiking down to the south, and I got a lift um, on the motorway going down from a guy um, in a smart red sports car who turned out to be called Terry Williams and worked for uh, Reuters in Paris. And I said, oh, is that good? He said, it's, uh, it's better than a lot of other things. Come along and see me. So when I got back from my holiday, I went up to the Paris office and found Terry sitting there with his feet on the desk listening to the radio. And I said, this is work. And he said, yep. Um, and he took me out for a drink and then said, if you do apply to Reuters, I think you'd be great. Um, and by the way, there's one question they will ask you. And he told me the question. So a year and the answer. And a year later, um, 
I was uh, applying for a job and I thought I'll put motors down. They, they took, brought me in because at that stage I had very good um, Russian and French, uh, mediocre Spanish and not quite up to a German. And, um, but they said, okay, that'll do. Um, and then they took me in for the interview and they said the formal interview and halfway through it, um, the guy who was conducting it said, um, Peter, I've got a question to ask you. If, um, we sent you to somewhere that you'd never been before to report on the story, what are the first things you would do? And Terry told me there's all sorts of things you might want to do, you know, find a hotel, crash out, get a drink, whatever. But the one thing you have to do is you just to say them as I told, I thought I looked really as if I was struggling hard and said, I guess I'd have to find a, a telephone or, or a telex those sort of days and find a way of getting in a story back to base. And he just sort of nodded and, um, and nothing more. And then they asked me a few more questions and the next day they told me they'd got the job. <laughs> I don't know what I'd have said if I hadn't known the answer in advance. <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great story. Um, so you, can you just t- talk us through the day that you were given the East German assignment and how that came about? Um, how it came about, I have no idea. Most of the people who um, would have done it are probably now defunct. Oh, actually, Manfred isn't. But um, I, I was shocked and slightly intimidated and then overjoyed because I, I was in my second year at Reuters. I'd spent, I spent a year on the desk in London and then I'd spent a year in Brussels as a trainee. And although this was in the early days of Britain and the EU, and um, I was really quite, um, yeah, this is, this is good, but it's a bit, Dull. Um, you know, the best things we were doing about fish quotas and listening to then as now uh, hackney British businessmen coming up with uh, British politicians, I should say, coming up with some um, bad joke phrases trying to get into the sun and the and the mail. Um, suddenly, East Berlin seemed sort of widely different, but it was also a bit intimidating because um, I was only 27. Uh, my German was um, the third of my languages, um, and I was about to get engaged. And I was going to be sent also not to start. I wasn't going into an office like Brussels, which had five people and uh, various um, technical stuff. I was going to be there on my own with um, one East German assistant. And I thought, wow, but can I turn this down? Well, no, <laughs> not possibly. I mean, it was just it was just too exciting. I mean, I'd, I'd grown up on Cold War stories and uh, the whole sort of thing. Now the whole idea of being sent to East Germany was just just exciting. And you'd never been to East Germany before. I, I had never been to East Germany. The only time I'd been to Germany in the past was when I went to visit a pen pal in the Rhineland um, about 10 years earlier. I'd spent a year in Paris, a year in Brussels, a month in Moscow, but I'd never been to Berlin. Did, you, did they give you any kind of training beforehand you know, on how to conduct <laughs> Nothing. yourself? Nothing. <laughs> 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 the point about Rogers is, hey, you got in here as a journalist. You wanted to be exciting? Off you go. And what was the other thing? There's the time, I have to say, there was a very... Um, esoteric posting um, the, the real fact was that very little ever came out of East Germany it had been pretty static uh, ever since the, the 1950s and 1960s when they built the wall um, there was really not a lot there were not many, many dissidents to be heard of and that's why as I, I told you my first, uh, first story I filed was um, on, on a football match between <laughs> Ballerina and Leipzig you know, a little Northern Ireland team and an East German team um, and even that I didn't go to the match I just did it off the television and there was really very little but I have friends in Antrim that wouldn't like you calling Balamino a little team. <laughs> it's <laughs> <Kay> blues. <laughs> uh, right. Yes. Well, I, I was born in County Down, so I have enough reason to know about it. Absolutely. Uh, did you get to watch much football when you were in the GDR? No, to me, this is, this is another irony. Um, in fact, my, my grandfather had been um, secretary of the Irish Football Association, but I was a complete uh, football agnostic. I didn't. I'm now an ardent fan. Um, I, I very between between losing teams between FC Marbella and Charlton Athletic. So I'm hardly um, in the Premier League. But um, I only got converted to uh, 
football when I turned 40 and decided it was a good way to distract one of my young sons from uh, our teenage uh, nuisances. And you took him to Charlton? <laughs> yeah, we took him to Charlton and we, we drew one all with uh, Newcastle. <laughs> Hardly riveting even then. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, you write in the book, this is not par- primarily a history book, but the story of the curious love-hate relationship between events and journalists, a relationship that ends up as history. It is in particular the story of this journalist, and this story is one which I did not so much report as live. East Berlin wasn't just a place I went to write about, but an inseparable part of my life. The people whose lives were forever changed by the events of November 9th, 1989, were not interviewees, but close personal friends, people I considered almost part of my family. Could you expand um, for our listeners and those who haven't read the book, um, what you meant by East Berlin wasn't just a place I went to write about, but an inseparable part of my life? Well, it's, it's partly, as I say, initially um, there was very little going on there. And I spent a lot of time reporting from West Berlin. And that was, it was a great schizophrenic uh, city to live in because East Berlin was rather drab, um, the core streetlights. West Berlin was big, glitzy, full of bars, sex clubs, um, concerts. Um, I went to see several major rock concerts there. And, um, but it was also that because it was West Berlin had a big um, uh, attracted a lot of students from West Germany because they got uh, they got out of having to do army service if they went to Berlin University. Therefore, there were also a lot of squatters, and the squatters were very very left wing. And every time anything anyone tried to get rid of them or any American president visited, there would be mass riots in the street. And it was one, so I spent a lot of time reporting on that as well because from the West Berlin office, which was staffed by two Germans, and then I went back over to the east, and it suddenly seemed quiet. It seems very peaceful, but it also was very boring. And I gradually got to know a few people um, from the secretary and in the office and from the cleaner. But then also I finally found a pub to go into and we've come back to that. But the fact was that over the years going into that pub, I got to make friends and more and more friends. And, uh, and the people who I knew there have sort of stayed with me. I mean, I think now in 2013, uh, I went to that, that pub's 100th anniversary in the same family. Um, and even then, there, some of the people I knew there sadly had died. Um, one of them, Horst, that had been in the, um, in the National People's Army. Um, he died early at the age of 40. Alex had been the barman, was gone. But that, that was sort of, I, went, I, mean, I, I flew to their funerals. Um, Alexandra, um, Alex's daughter, is still there. I, we exchanged Christmas cards. I was in Berlin just in February this year and went in to see Sylvie Horst's widow, who still runs the pub to this day. Um, I saw Kerstin, whose um, ID cards I'd smuggled out of East Germany uh, just before the, the, the war came down. And, you know, they... they they really are, because these are people, we think about it now, I've known them, um, but recently, since 1981, that's a long time. I think, um, I'll hand over to Ian shortly, but I, I think that this book, what I particularly enjoyed about it was, you know, so many books on the GDR, Ian and I both have a lifelong fascination with the GDR, and so many of the books are quite dry academic books, or they focus purely on the Stasi. There are very few books out there which focus on the actual ordinary, if you will, citizens of, of East Germany. That's what I really enjoyed I, I, your book. That's right, and I, I might come back to that. Um, I think you're, you're able to ask me about films and things, but there's been a lot of stuff that has been, um, everything because the GDR has been terribly negative and very oppressive. Actually, it was a really nice place to live. Um, <laughs> it sounds absolutely absurd, but of course I had the option of going over to West Berlin at any time. I could do my shopping over there, but you know, people weren't starving. Um, there was nobody who was um, living a really bad life. I mean, if, if you've seen, come to this, the, the, the series, the television series, which started with Deutschland 18. 18- 
Ski. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to continue next year with Deutschland 86 and then finally with Deutschland 89. It's about a very real um, aspect of time. Some people were worried about the Cold War escalating. And what it does really well is it does, had it, been, it was made in Germany uh, by Germans from East and West, but had it been made by British or Americans, I'm sure that East Germany would have appeared much more grayer. I mean, the thing about it was we never short of food. We shot all sorts of food, but if you, if you could live on pork and sausages, there was endless amounts of those. There was um, potatoes, there were root vegetables, uh, there was vast quantities of beer, all very cheap. Um, there was in the, the pub that I was regularly in, for example, every Friday night, the, the, the lads from the bakery around the road um, would come in with a bucket and fill it up with beer and take it back to the bakery. Um, there, was a, there was a camaraderie. In ways, I suppose, it's a bit like the way people, um, of a, of a bit older people now, have a nostalgia for the awful period of the Second World War. There are a lot of East Germans who still think it wasn't that bad, you know, life was easier. Yeah, Peter, I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that's definitely come across from the interviews I've done with uh, former East Germans, that um, whilst there wasn't a, a lot of choice there was a lot of you know there was no shortage of food and you were looked after effectively from cradle to grave as long as you kept your nose clean exactly kept your nose clean and you didn't get to travel too much but to be perfectly honest that isn't very different to the island of the 1960s that i grew up in (laughs) yeah it was the the economy was there you didn't people weren't buying in ireland from going abroad they just couldn't afford it yeah and uh, it wasn't that we did them all buy exotic food stuff they just weren't any no, absolutely, and I think that's true of a lot of areas in the UK as well during that um, during that period. So you, you arrive in East Berlin, and you you have two main problems, which are your German is at A level standard, and you couldn't drive. How did you manage to overcome those? <laughs> those were both a bit difficult. Um, the German, I, I'm a natural linguist, to be honest, and so the language came gradually. I mean, there was a the first particular main trouble was with the accent. Um, and a bit of vocabulary. There's always vocabulary you need to pick up. But there was a guy who lived downstairs in our flat block. Um, who was he was he still had a title that had actually been abolished in West Germany um, after the Nazi period, which was Hausmeister, meaning the, the housemaster. Um, but his job was really to be the concierge. But it was always sort of suspected that he was um, checking up on people. And he would come up to um, my flat once or twice a week and say, "Peter, Peter, I hit the Yanadi Zeitung," which is thick Berlin accent. Um, and what he wanted was the newspapers, and I, I had West. German newspapers that delivered, but I was specifically forbidden to give them to Easterners because, of course, they didn't want to uh, let them be con- uh, puzzled by the propaganda or consider that they were being uh, um, given too much Western news. But it turned out that all he wanted was the back page because it had the television programs on it. And that, that was the irony about uh, East Germany, too, was particularly East Berlin, was because it was a huge great fan in the West. Everybody watched Western TV. Almost nobody watched um, East German TV, but they couldn't get the programs. Um, there, was no, there was no timetable, no list, so they, unless they had a, some access to a Westerner, they didn't have a way to know what was on. And that was the one thing, if he really got that, and he would hand that out, and, and people would come around to see what was on TV tonight. So, you know, that was, a, that was a very different thing. Um, sorry, what was the, was the other part of your question? Yeah, how, how did you manage to uh, overcome not being able to drive? Yes, well, that was that was entertaining too because initially um, I had thought um, I, I was a keen cyclist in those days, and I thought I'd buy a bicycle and I could take that across. Um, until I learned to drive, it turned out they immediately said, "No, you cannot take a bicycle through Checkpoint Charlie." And I said, "I can take a car, but, but not a bicycle." And they just said, "Yes," and I said, "Why?" And they just said, "Just so." I've, I've never found out what 
two reasons why. I mean, I, there's not much you could hide in secret documents in the frame of a bicycle. The only thing I can imagine is that they were worried about um, people taking in huge numbers of East German bicycles, which were very cheap because they, they sponsored sport, and sort of exporting them. But I, I've never really found out why. So the only thing to do was to learn to drive, which is at 27, it was about the time I did anyway. And um, also we had a very nice uh, VW Golf office car. And so I decided I would sign up and, and take my driving test. Uh, the first the first problem with it too, which goes for the other one, because my German was still improving and not yet perfect. Um, there was a, um, a theory test, which of course there wasn't in the UK or Ireland in those days. And I had to take the theory test. And I was looking at it. A lot of it was very simple. It was like street science, and, uh, which were internationally recognized. But there were things about the motor and the engine and, and spark plugs. Not only did I not know the word, in fact, I still do. Um, I didn't even know what they did. And I was, this, this, my instructor um, was a bit, hmm, about this. He said, how is it, you know, like doing cross the wall very often? I said, oh, it's great. He said, do you ever get that brandy um, aspect? And um, I said, oh, yes, I do. He said, mm, it's very nice, that's a bit nice. I said, yes, it is, yes. Um, so uh, the next time I went by, I just found a bottle. I said, here's a bottle. I just thought, right, you might like it. And he said, oh, how much do you? I said, oh, don't worry. You're doing a great job with my instruction. Next week, I went down. I discovered I'd passed the theory test straight away. <laughs> Brilliant story. Good. Brilliant. There was still, there was still, there's another part to it because there was still the practical test uh, to take. And they, because space was tight, literally, even, we had um, four, two, two people did it at once in uh, the test simultaneously in the one car. We had a little Russian ladder, and it was me and a girl from the, the Ghanaian embassy who was doing the test for the sixth time. And in the car also was the examiner sitting in the front seat and the instructor in the back seat. So there were four of us. She did it first, and um, on her first drive around the Dampsigos class um, area, she first of all drove, got stuck in the tram line, and then nearly killed two kids crossing a corner. So um, they then put me in the chair, and simply, I think, because I didn't really kill anybody, and I didn't get stuck in the tram line, I passed. And I've never, ever passed another driving test. So the, um, the, the, after, after a year or so, I exchanged my, uh, when I left um, Berlin, uh, I exchanged my East Berlin license for a West Berlin license and my West Berlin license eventually for a West German license after unification and then eventually my West German license for a British license. So the only license, the only test I've ever passed is in a country that no longer exists. That's a great claim, great claim. Um, (laughs) um, In in your book, you talk about the fuss pot and the honey pot. Yes, yes, yes. Um, the first part was, was Ed Mutter, who was the um, office secretary, um, had been the office secretary for well, 20 odd years. And she did help me through with everything, but she was always very stickler for detail and, and must do this and must do that. Um, the honeypot was Helga, Helga Nabrowski, who was um, basically the cleaner, the maid, and um, normally used there to dealing with single men. Um, and Helga was drop dead gorgeous. Um, she was two years older than me, which made her seem at the age of 30 a bit old at that stage. <laughs> but um, Helga made a no secret of telling me that she and my pre- predecessor, who I won't name for obvious reasons, had lived together like man and wife, nudge, nudge. And in the first few weeks I was there on my own, uh, before my uh, wife-to-be arrived, um, Helga took me around clubs. It was strictly um, above board, I have to say, but we went to clubs and went dancing. And, and it was immediately um, uh, after I got married that summer and my wife arrived, and Helga was suddenly disappeared and was not, not sent there anymore. And she was replaced by a, a woman, what I probably then sort of ancient as about 60 odd, and she came instead. So um, the honeypot was emptied. So, Peter, you had some illustrious predecessors at Reuters, one in particular who is a character 
I've been fascinated with for a long time, and that's a guy called John Pete, who are listening yeah, yeah. connected to the from, from Reuters. Did you ever get to meet John Pete? I did, I did. I got to meet John on uh, several occasions. Um, he came into the office just after uh, I arrived there and talked through his story. It was a great story because he was a, a quite keen communist and defected, uh, but did the classic thing of actually writing up. When I say writing up, in those days to put a story through from East Berlin, we had to type it out on a teletext machine, which meant punching holes every five, five dots across. Um, and a, a roll of tape, and then you could take the tape out, and then you ran it like a piece of cloth through a sewing machine into this, into this, um, uh, into the, the fax, fax, telex, telex machine. Good grief, prefax. And um, John had written his own story and left it there um, for the uh, the next person coming in to pump, punch through, and they punched it through, and it was a story of his own defection. It was great. He actually found that John Pete made a uh, made a dash for freedom. He was a nice man. He was very very calmly spoken, very tall, slender. Um, quite old by then I can't quite think uh, and he didn't he, he died just shortly I left or possibly even while I was there so I only met him two or three times uh, an interesting guy I have a stack of um, the Democratic German Report newspapers that I think was a bi-weekly English language newspaper out of the GDR that he edited and they're a fascinating read they remind me very much of the Searchlight magazines and UK the oh, right. magazines because the, the, those DGR newspapers were very much outing people in the in West Germany in government who had a fascist past. Um, so, yes. you know, really fascinating read, and of course, a lot of propaganda in there and everything else. But they're a really interesting snapshot of of the GDR. Mm. What a lot you know, of I, I don't think I, I don't think I read any because, of course, I was concentrating on just reading in German. Absolutely, and I think they stopped. I think he, he edited them from the mid-50s to the mid-70s, so it was before your time. I'm not entirely sure why they oh, stopped. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't get there until late 81. Sure. Um, sorry, sorry uh, Peter, did, did you get the impression that, that John was still a believer in um, you know, the socialist project in East Germany? We did not talk about it. I only ever met him when he came to the office. He never, we never met socially outside it. And of course, the, the office, um, like the whole flat, was, was heavily bugged. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that he was also friends with uh, Len Dayton, the spy writer. Um, yeah. Len Dayton wrote the intro to his, his biography, uh, The Long Engagement. Ah. On Pete. Yes. Well, I've, just a name drop here. I had an email from Len Dayton recently, and he was very impressed that I dug out that intro because I'm, you know, I'm a geek. I'm fascinated in this kind of thing. And what's interesting is that Len, politically, is probably the opposite. It's probably more on the conservative wing, but was big friends with John Pete. Uh, so it's a very interesting intro if you can get hold of it. The book is worth a read anyway, um, because a lot I of it. I looked at that. Yes, I haven't read it, yeah. Yeah, it covers a lot of his time, you know, in the UK and, you know, his communist thoughts and everything before he, he made the jump to these. So, uh, yeah, uh, in, interesting part of history. And if we're talking about predecessors, of course, um, you held the job that was once held by a guy that some of our listeners might have heard of called Frederick Forsyth. And I uh, <laughs> read the book, The Erdmutter. Um, your, your secretary was not, not a fan, was quite disapproving of Freddie Forsyth. Yes, she didn't really like him. Um, and, I mean, she justified it by one of the, his famous uh, faux pas, uh, which I must admit, I, I can see why it happened. Uh, uh, he, he wrote a story to Reuters one night after seeing um, tanks rolling down Schoenhaus IA, which is where the, the flat was. And he wrote a, he wrote a really quite um, a shocking story saying that it looks like a possible invasion of West Germany happening. And what it really was, it was the day before May Day. They were just having a rehearsal. <laughs> Freddie Freddy doesn't tell that story very often. <laughs> well, well, if we ever get him on the podcast at Spybury, I'll have to ask him about that one. 
Yeah, I, I can't yeah, recall yeah. hearing that story in his biography. It certainly isn't. It's, but you'll find it in any Reuters one. Um, it's, it's a very famous incident. I mean, I sort of forgive him a little bit because um, April 31st, uh, many years later, I was there about 10 years later than him, but um, I saw the tanks going past the window myself. I thought, oh, my God. And then I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know what this is about. I looked at the date and I thought, no, 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 I'm not going to be at the end of April fool. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. I I wanted to ask as well, how did you feel living in a state where it was likely with you being a Western reporter, you, you well, you know from your Stasi file that there was surveillance on you. I mean, you know, Ian and I read about this in spy books and history books, but you lived through this. I mean, what was it like to think that, you know, you could have a microphone in the bedroom and the Stasi were listening in? Oh, they, they had. They had. I mean, um, they, in fact, when uh, Reuters moved into a new office in Berlin after the war came down, um, they, just, they, they stripped the flat and found uh, 29 microphones. Um, so they were, yeah. <laughs> and that's it, a, a flat that had the office, um, a bedroom, a kitchen, and a living room. And there were 29 microphones in the walls. I also knew um, that at the end, at the door next up, the left hand, we're on the first floor, and the door next door was never opened. It had a name on it. And it was never, never saw anyone going in or out. And we just assumed, and I suggested to Edward, who sort of didn't, she didn't ever say anything, but um, she sort of nodded that there was obviously in there that the Stasi were sitting and, and the microphones, uh, controlling the microphones and the tapes for what they were going from the flat. And then later, I did find out again in, in the 1990s that indeed there was a Lieutenant Weichelt um, who was in there, and um, he, there, was, there was a pub on the ground floor, a bar, and in the back of the bar, with a door that led into another um, stairwell, which gave him up straight into his room, so he didn't need to come through the ordinary staircase. Wow. It was all a bit, um, yeah. But so what you got was that we knew that we were being surveilled, or whatever the current term is, but we were being listened to and watched. And when I did get the Stasi file, of course, I had several examples where the, the police tailed me for, for days on end. But at the time, I didn't notice. And as for you being, you know, having a microphone in your bedroom, in your kitchen, you just get used to it. Um, and if you have anything um, particularly uh, delicate to say, you, um, you turn on the taps, you turn on the radio, or most of all, you just go out. And as for having, um, you know, being monitored in your bedroom, you just have to live with that. <laughs> you just say, well, I'll put, I mean, you that, that, that comes into the very great film, Laban de Under, Lives of Others. Um, and you see the sort of the embarrassing bits where um, they're, they're sort of listening to him in bed with his girlfriend. And, you know, you just sort of have to say, well, if you've got to worry about it all the time, you've got to worry about far too much. I mean, there were other things, too, as I saw in my Stasi file. Um, uh, they had, apart from just all the, the, the 300 pages, there were several photographs. And the one which is most enchanting is it was taken by uh, a camera based in the tail light of a Trabant car. And it shows... Um, 
it's slightly at an angle, obviously, but it shows there was a, uh, my wife and I coming out of um, a shop on the corner, which was a shop that was purely for um, foreign currency. So it was only Westerners who went there. And at the bottom of the fire, it shows uh, me janking the car keys and my wife struggling with this huge carton of goodies and at the bottom of the file in Lieutenant Michael said it should be noted that on shopping expeditions Miller makes his wife carry the heavy items <laughs> she's never let me down <laughs> was there an occasion in the book where you were being followed and you lost them because it was your wife was doing the map reading or something yeah that's that's right no she yes she was we were just going up we knew it was it was a hot day in the summer um, and we were going up to a lake swimming in the north of Berlin. And we went straight up and then we took the wrong turning. And we had to go around again, come back in again and take the wrong turn. And the Stasi headed down this class- classic um, anti-surveillance technique. No, 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 no. It was just Mrs. Miller's own sense of map reading. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, when you, there's a number of references to you crossing into uh, West Berlin. And uh, you mentioned Rita and Yogi Bear. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, again, that's, I mean, that's again another thing that goes completely uh, against the standard picture of the GDR. Um, I, was, I could only get through uh, Friedrichstrasse Checkpoint Charlie. That was the only place I was uh, allowed to go, to the extent that I was forced to go there, the, the wall opened to all sorts of other people. But uh, because they, the, the people there um, were generally long-timers, and they were, they were on the, the same people were on the wall at that point, um, all the time I was there, and indeed several years afterwards, and indeed in uh, Yogi Bear, if you like, uh, right up until the, the wall came down. And I, so I sort of got to know them, but obviously they knew everything about me, birthplace, um, passport descriptions, everything. I knew nothing about them, not even their names. And the, the, the occasion we say, uh, there was only one woman, and she was um, had a sort of... Uh, um, a satchel across her shoulder and she had a, a forage cap and um, I always thought it was you know, lovely Rita Rita made <laughs> you know, she looked much older made it look a little like a military man and I just nicknamed her that and, he, uh, and she was particularly interesting because we bought a, a sofa for the office a nice big leather sofa which of course we had to buy in West Berlin and I drove up uh, rented a small truck and took it through the wall and taking a, a truck for the sofa and it through Checkpoint Charlie was a bit unheard of and Rita, as I nicknamed her, was fascinated. Oh, can I say? Oh, that's nice. Oh, like that. And uh, uh, to the extent that, that later that same afternoon, after dropping off the soap, I, uh, sofa, I took the truck back through Checkpoint Charlie. I could have had 20 people in it, but nobody even looked in. And then with, uh, you know, and years later, she would always say, um, be gay to them sofa. You know, how's the sofa doing, Pete? <laughs> sort of slightly bizarre. And Yogi, um, again, I didn't know his name, but I called him that because he was a big bear of a man, curly hair, heavily built um, and he was always over time got a, a last thing and when I came when this was years and um, this is 1981 when I first met him 1989 when I last met him um, he was still saying you know how are you doing how's life what are you doing these days so I'd written a couple of books but I said ah you've become an author have you and yeah 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 and it's the funny thing I mean, these people were demonized and they were thought these are these are the, the killer border guards um, the people who would you know go out and shoot you I mean, there were some of those, obviously. But the people, they, this was a sort of human face, and they, it was sort of good PR. And the very last time I, I saw him um, was on night of October 4th, German Unity Day, 1990. And um, was, they were taking down, just throwing open the gates to Checkpoint Charlie completely and starting to dismantle it. And I called them over and said, look, you know, I've seen you, we've talked for years a bit officially, and what's your name? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm Uber. Uh, yeah, Peter, I'm Uber. Shall we have a beer? And we went and had a beer in the uh, little bar on the western side of Chocolate Charlie. I said, well, what are you going to do now? He said, I guess I'm going to discover what unemployment means. Wow. 
Wow. Yep. <laughs> it's it's a, it's certainly an angle that you you don't hear is is the you know the human that's behind the uniform. Um, yeah. You know. I, I must point out, because Ian won't do this because he's probably too modest, but uh, Ian has an episode, I want to say, I think it was episode 13, where he interviewed a guy called Michael Rafferty, who was one of the last soldiers to manage uh, to, to be on, on duty at Checkpoint Charlie. And uh, that's a fascinating interview from the other side, the other perspective of how they viewed the East Germans on, at Checkpoint Charlie. Very much worth uh, listening to. So he, uh, that was, was one of, uh, that's an outstanding interview, Ian, that you had there with Michael. Well, th- thank you, thank you. And he, he does talk about you know the 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 guards the other side, and he does mention one of the female guards, uh, I think, mm-hmm. in that episode. Um, but anyway, yes, as Shane says, um, well worth a listen. So I, I guess you know we love the references in the book to Metzeck, and you'll be pleased to know, Peter. I think I, I mentioned over Twitter that we had a Spybury podcast meetup in Berlin in the in the summer. And a few of us, we took a bit of a pilgrimage to Metzeck and had some schnitzel and uh, way too many dumplings. <laughs> <laughs> so we got to experience Metzeck uh, and it was fun. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the people you met there and how they reacted to a Westerner in their midst? Because most of the stuff I've read was, you know, it was frowned upon for East Berliners to have any contact with, with Westerners. Um, what was that like? Well, right, it, it, it took time to evolve. Um, it was that night after riots in, in uh, West Berlin that I'd been covering it. It was wintry and it was slow on the ground. And I really had only found one or two places to occasionally have a beer, and particularly, obviously, in the flat, the bar beneath our flat. Um, they weren't particularly friendly, unsurprisingly, given that they had a secret door in the back. Uh, but I saw this place on the corner and I wandered in, and um, it was a bit silent. Um, and I said, a beer, and um, I had a copy of The Times with me. And I stood over in the corner, uh, very much on my own, um, reading the Times and drinking a little 25CO beer. And this chap came over to me and, and, and said something in English. And um, these were early days when my um, I was quite happy for someone to say something to me in English. And he said, um, could I look at the newspaper? I thought, I shouldn't do this. But what the hell? I was only told not to let them have the German papers. So I gave the paper to him. And he was really just using it as an excuse to get chatting. And we chatted away a couple of times and um, I went in and met him there uh, a few more times and we would chat and I would speak with I think this is good we mix it up in English and German he was improving my German I was improving his English but quite a few times he wasn't there and uh, the man behind the bar who turned out to be my very good friend Alex um, started talking to me and, and I was more than happy to talk totally in, in German to him and he did then say just just watch that guy his name was, was Jochen, um, and, um, but they had a nickname for him, which was Fade, and they suspected him of being a Stasi informer. And so I was just a little bit careful from then on. He was always very pleasant to me, and in fact, uh, taught my wife how to make a Berlin potato soup, which is one of the finest soups in the world. But um, after a time, Alex said, well, Peter, come and sit down here. And I thought, good God. And this was the Stammtisch. The Stammtisch is where all the regulars came. And in any, it's important in any German, uh, any German bar, even today. But back then, it was particularly important because it meant you could trust them. And the people were there were people who trusted each other. And they thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, you know, uh, here's a Westerner here. But Alex gave the nod. And because he had worked out that, you know, he knew what I was on, but he realized that I wasn't um, a spook or um, any sort of informer. Um, I was a genuinely young, quite naive journalist. And, but they all wanted to talk and chat. And I met a vast variety of people, um, some of whom were um, actors. Uh, Gunter Chekhov, still a um, well-known actor today in the West, well, in the West, in Berlin. Um, uh, I had another friend. Metzeck was a very special bar. Alex chose his clientele. Uh, so you weren't really on, the, on his list. Um, and I don't mean a real list, but if you didn't get the nod, 
it wasn't quite such a friendly place. And there was a film director, an East German film director, and a, a guy who ran a, an apprentice home across the road. And he had to be a party member, of course, because um, they weren't going to let somebody they didn't, the party didn't know about bring up young apprentices. But yet, in fact, when he, he was a big bearded man, and when I finally left to go to Moscow, um, he handed me his uh, SED, his Communist Party badge. And I thought, that's, that's, that's as good as you can get, mate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and other stories too. I mean, I should mention Hannah Laura. Um, Hannah Laura and Dita. Dita was uh, one of the barmen and who always was had a jolly and very amusing trying to he knew no English at all, but he always was in the drinking with the Schnelling, hoppy, hoppy. <laughs> Can you get your, get your drinks on your neck now? And his uh, girlfriend, Hannah Laura, told me great stories, well, terrible stories, really. Sorry about her, her uncle, her uncle Pete, um, who had lived in one of the little villages on the outskirts of Berlin until the 13th of August, 1961, where they, they built a wall that cut off the village. The village had been effectively just like a spur, like at the end of a, a starfish's tail or whatever. Um, and um, it was cut off because it was, the wall was done by postcodes. It was the ultimate postcode lottery. And um, it's like a, some streets had uh, uh, the wall ran down the front of their houses. So you, there was a particularly famous street where the, house, the houses themselves were in East Berlin, but the pavement outside the door was in West Berlin. Mm-hmm. And at the end, they had to stay, they ended up knocking down the houses and building the wall. But he, she had heard her uncle and his friend um, had found themselves cut off from their regular bar. And they said, this was another bar that they drank in every night. You know, it's not as good as the one just down the end of the street. But down the end of the street now had barbed wire and concrete. And one night, they just decided after too many beers, they'd go for it. And they got down and they scrambled underneath the barbed wire. But Pete didn't make it and got shot and was never seen again. Tragic. So there was a lot of poignancy there too. And uh, am I right in understanding uh, from the book that that was one of the very few pubs in East Berlin that was privately owned? The rest were run by the government. Um, yes, there were more more than just a few, but most of them most of them were run by the government, and they had it simply because um, Clara, the the, the ancestor of Babel, had uh, won the lottery, the other sort of lottery, in 1913, and bought a long lease on the um, pub. And uh, the lease continued, and, and when in, in 2013 we had the 100th anniversary party, um, uh, Sylvia, who runs it today, um, said, you know, we've been here for 100 years, we survived the, the Kaiser, uh, the, the, the war, the revolution, the Nazis, and the communists, and now we're still here, and five currencies. And I really felt that sense of history when I, when I was there in the summer through your book and also just through the photographs on the wall. It, it's, a, it's a pub that I think uh, anyone who's listening to this show who finds themselves in Berlin should go visit. Um, in Prenzlau. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's quite unique. When, when they, they had the 100th year party, I mean, they had all sorts of Berlin and, and German uh, television and radio turn up. I didn't know any of this, of course, in 1981. Sure. Nor did anyone else. So you just stumbled across it, and uh, as they say, the rest is history. Absolutely. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. So we should also mention your other book just very quickly. So you have, a, you have a few books, but one called Tomorrow Belongs to Me, and Metzer Eck is on the front cover of that, which is Germany. Boy, uh, that's not the one we should. That's, that, that was my first ever book, and that was literally just after I came back. I thought I'd try and get something, but I didn't, because that's well before the war came down. And I just wanted to write a book about um, uh, the way things are. The way things were, and it's actually a biography of Alex, the the bar manager. It's it's an interesting book, but um, the 1989 book, I have to say, is much better. Yes, I, I haven't read. Oh, no, I yeah, I have it on my shelf. It's here, but I haven't got to it. Yeah, that that was the book what that I, first introduced me to you. Actually, Peter, I picked it up secondhand somewhere, and 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 read the story there. It's 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 worth a read because it's another perspective. 
Yes, well, well, the other book that um, I could refer to is the uh, my not as successful as it should be um, novel, but um, primarily because I made a mistake in the title, which is my comparison of, of Berlin to, to London, uh, which I had just the shameful suicide of Winston Churchill. I should never have put the shameful in. Um, it was initially going to be suspicious suicide of Winston Churchill, which is um, my creation of the entire GDR scene um, put on on a map of London. And it is something that had appealed to me for years just because the topography is so fits so well. I mean, it's uncannily well. Um, I, I don't know if you've come across it, but um, I, I have, it's, it's set in a, a London that's been divided after Soviet occupation. And you have um, East Berlin, is, uh, East, East London is capital of the English Democratic Republic. And, I have, and then Westminster, which is an enclave on the other side of the wall, from a wall that runs uh, from, from Whitehall, from all the way down Whitehall, with a Churchill's bunker just in the no man's land, just as mm. Hitler's was in Berlin. It has then comes down to the river with um, the House of Commons, the, the shell of the House of Commons, just on the western side, as the Reichstag was. You come up to having Admiralty Arch as the equivalent of the Brandenburg Gate, and then up to uh, New Oxford Street as uh, Jack Point Charlie. It's, it, it's, it's uncanny, absolutely uncanny. I have it in my hands here, and I love the front of it. Jeffrey Diva says, look out, Dan Brown, make way for Miller. Uh, so I've got it here and it's on my to-be-read shelf, which is shelves, really. Uh, I will get to it. Because I also have your well, other look, book, we're going off subject a little, but All Gone to Look for America, which is your travelogue about your journeys in the US. So you're a pretty accomplished author. And, and the other one, actually, which would even interest you more, which is Slow Train to Guantanamo, which is a journey in, through Cuba in the last days of the Castros, which oh. I did in 2010. And that was, I mean, that was, it is just, that's, that's actually quite entertaining. It's not really um, uh, a travel log in the strict sense because Cuba was just such a mess then. Sounds like you could spend a whole hour on that one with Ian on a future episode of Cold War Conversations. You cover Cuba, Ian. You, 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 you could. Cuba is, a real, um, Cuba is a real story in itself. I've been there several times. Cuba is absolutely on my list. We'll have to do another call, Peter. Um, <laughs> okay. But uh, back, back to the, uh, the GDR. Um, how, what did it feel like to read your Stasi file? Sinister. Very odd. Very odd. Um, I had to, we have to read it at first in the Normanistras, in the former study headquarters. Uh, but then afterwards, and of course, they've, um, they've redacted names of anybody um, they think that you don't know about. Um, their, their, their rule for it is that you should never find from reading your own study file that um, your neighbor was having an affair. Um, that's, that's, that was their, their rule. But then afterwards, it's very good. I mean, they... they, they uh, photocopied the whole thing and, and sent it to me for something like um, uh, one euro cent um, um, a page. That would have been one, one finic or something in those days. It would have been. But it's great and I still have it here. I have it in the folder. And I got Marcus Wolf, the former East German uh, external espionage chief, to yes. find it for me. It was quite interesting. You, you write about interviewing Marcus Wolf after the fall of the wall. Uh, the fall of the wall. Um, how was that experience? It was great. We sat and um, had a couple of cups of coffee outside the Red Rathaus, the, the East Berlin Town Hall. And a bit after, of course, he'd also been acquitted because you know, he'd been charged with treason and he was um, uh, sentenced to jail. And then he appealed and um, says a lot for German uh, uh, legal system. They said, actually, um, Marcus Wolf was um, um, engaged in espionage for the German Democratic Republic, which was at that stage uh, a separate country recognized by the Federal Republic of Germany. So therefore, he could not have committed treason. And um, they just let him go. He didn't live very much longer either, but he spent most of his time in writing um, a cookbook of his days in Russia because he was a real communist family. And when in the Nazi time, they fled to Moscow. 
as the sanctuary, and he'd grown up in Russia and spoke fluent Russian, obviously, and also did a sort of German versions of Russian dishes, very odd thing from Dan with. He also had good anecdotes to the bond of only one that I'll mention just because it ties in with what we were just talking about was he said the most dodgy person he ever had today was when Castro, Fidel Castro, came to visit the GDR on a, on a state visit. And the trouble we had was that he would not take their security. And particularly, he would, um, they had obviously a security detail to, to look after him to make sure nothing happened. Um, but Castro would climb out the back window of the hotel so he could get to Brussels and West Berlin. Fidel <laughs> <laughs> was a great womanizer. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, have you read uh, Marcus Wolf's book, Peter? The A.B. Cookbook or the oh, his, his biography? Yeah. Oh, yes, I have, yeah. Because the thing, I, Ian and I have talked about this at length previously, and it might have been some while since you read it, so... I, um, it is a long time since I read it, yeah. I mean, I, I just feel, and if you agree with me, that I had to take a lot of that book with a pinch of salt. Um, it's one of my favorite books on the GDR purely because of the stories it includes. But, you know, he kind of positions himself as, well, actually, I wasn't that fond of uh, Honecker and the regime and Milka. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, how Everybody much in that, they're all self-justification. And did, 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 did he sort of talk to you about what, what Milka was like to work for? No, no, he didn't. He was very, he was just, was just after his acquittal in the trial. He wasn't going to be telling a journalist anything that might make a good story. But it was very entertaining to meet him, and we talked. We talked about how the different branches of the um, the, the start, the internal and external, um, worked with one another. But um, we didn't really go into uh, details of, of Milka, uh, who was uh, still standing trial at that stage too. Yeah, I was just going to say, because what I think you were interested in sort of what sort of people would I like to have conversations from those days too, and it's quite funny. I just sort of thought about them, and there are there's actually three in particular that I would like to have a get a drink today, um, just to find out. One of them is Eric Weinert, who was my um, East German Foreign Ministry minder. He was the one who was supposed to take care of every question, every query I had. I was supposed to report to if I went too far outside Berlin, and his father was a great socialist hero of the Nazi period, and after. And I just wondered um, today, I'd like to know what he thinks about it, if he still, uh, he still thinks it was a good thing or a bad thing to go. The other one um, I'd like to know about, uh, a, couple of, a couple of Russian friends I had, both one in, one in Russia and one in Berlin, uh, who are never quite sure if their fathers or their relatives lived up to their surnames, because one was uh, Yuri Kalashnikov um, in Moscow, and uh, although it's not, it's not a unique name, but I always did wonder, he always let people think that he was related to the developer of Machine Gun. And the other was um, it's a painter still going strong today. I haven't seen for years, Nikolai Makarov. And I always wondered if he was related to the developer of the pistol because he was forced to leave Russia they, ostensibly because of his paintings being a bit dodgy and uh, set up a painting in, and set up painting in, in East Berlin. And then I'd like to meet Helga Nabrowski I've looked after for years, you know, um, just for whatever happened to Helga, who was the, the, the honey pot, as you hear in the book. Um, and indeed, Volker Sharnetsky, the guy who led me to, um, was a grave digger who was uh, sleeping with the daughter of um, a man who was turned out to be East Germany's version of uh, James Bond. In fact, that was one of the things Marcus Wolf told me. He said that he was um, uh, active in Africa in those days, in Angola. And so, and Volker was a, a good for nothing, really, <laughs> but he was very good fun to talk to. And I'd just love to know what happened to him. But these people disappear. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. I mean, in the best sense, they just get lost in society. Did you know that your account with Amazon can help me get new guests on the show? Just search for Cold War Conversations on Amazon and leave a review for the podcast. Thank you.
Yeah. It's, it's funny you mentioned Erich Weinert. Um, he's someone I'm researching right now for another podcast that we're doing in the future called, called Radio GDR. And my interest in him was sparked because until recently I was working for a German company and their head office was uh, on the outskirts of Prenzlauerberg on Erich Weinertstrasse. So I thought, who's this Erich Weinertstrasse? Uh, a couple of years ago, I looked up and I read about him. So I asked in the office, now bear in mind it was a tech startup, and I asked, I said, who's this Erich Weinert guy? Nobody knew who he was. I thought, wow, isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is. I mean, I, 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 this, the guy I knew was, my, was his son. Yes. Yeah. Who would have been about so mid-30s, 40 in the early 1980s. Did you come across any other English people in East Berlin who were working for the regime? No, no. I depends what you mean by the regime. I did cross, come across one who I won't name, um, but who was working for the British regime. <laughs> I won't name him because he was quite clearly a British spook. And he, um, he just, as soon as he left, he, just, he left while I was there, and his name vanished completely from all diplomatic records. I suspect it, was, it wasn't a true name, but he vanished. He was very, very clearly part of MI6. Right. Okay. Thank you for that. Peter, could, could you share with us the, the, the night when you got arrested and then expelled from the GDR? Could you talk us through that? Yes, certainly. Uh, it was the night after Gorbachev had come. Uh, it was the 6th of October, uh, 1989, and Gorbachev had come to give a big uh, speech for the, was the 40th anniversary of uh, East Germany's existence. And in a bit of the speech, he famously told uh, Honecker that who, he who gets ignores the past, gets forgotten. And, um, no, he, sorry, he who comes too late is forgotten by history. And Honecker was uh, you know, not, not happy about this, but of course, this was Gorbachev had been uh, liberalizing in Russia and these Germans had done nothing, nothing at all. And so he, when the speech leaked out, the people piled into the streets going, Gorby, 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 because they'd seen the enthusiasm for him in West Germany. And as a result of this, the Stasi came out and the police came out. First of all, the police, in close uh, uniform police, and started pushing the people back uh, away from the city centre. And then gradually we noticed there were Stasi amongst them because they came out in plain clothes with uh, truncheons and started beating the legs from the people. So when I was with them initially as a reporter, but we, we, we retreated back into the streets and into Prenzlauerberg and up towards Schönhausallee, which is where I live. And um, these guys were really coming out and getting really heavy at where I had lived eight years earlier. Um, and gradually they bunched us into various quarters. Up Schönhausallee, directly opposite the S-Bahn station, there was um, a couple of wide alleys and they got most of us back down into, by that stage, we were about five or six hundred. They, they, they'd split us all into groups. And when we came down this alleyway, we discovered that they'd got uh, armored lorries coming around the back with their gates and they were just there was nowhere else for us to go we couldn't go forward because they were standing there with clubs and they just herded us into the lorries um, and we were, we were entertaining too because we uh, I mean I, I, they, they just grabbed me too because my I, I, my German eyes a thick bullion accent and they just took it I was one of the crowd and we were thrown in and then we sat there for two hours with their, uh, all sorts of real Berlin um, schnauzer which is a bit like Cockney wit and, and spirit coming out of the back of the room, you know, is that you, mommy? Oh, yes, I'm in the next one. They got you too. And, uh, oh, I need a wee wee. Uh, they, were, they were just, at the end of, as we moved off, we all started seeing the international, the communist uh, uh, song, sung against the communist army. Um, and you could just see there were a lot of the kids. I mean, these, the police were only, I say, they, they were only in their 20s. And one of them showed up, why does your mother know what you're up to? She'll give you what for when you get home, which was all very sort of merciful and things until we finally got onto Marzan, the artificial eastern suburb which they just built up, and we were decanted out into a, a, a police station, which is a police station yard with um, white tiles against the wall and concrete 
concrete on, on the other side. And he started pushing us up to one side, pushing out with their arms and legs against the wall and running the truncheons up their inside legs. It was at which point I um, produced my, my, my passport and said, wait a minute, and you could see one of them just said, oh, shit, we didn't mean to catch one of them. Um, so I was pulled out of the crowd and taken upstairs and uh, interrogated by um, two plain coast police, haha, i.e. Stasi, um, for the whole night. And then the next morning, they finally said, well, we're just going to throw you up. And they took me down to the hotel where I was staying and said, we're going to take you to Checkpoint Charlie and you're going to be expelled forever from the GDR. I thought, no, hell. Um, uh, but they took me down and we went, went to the, get my key from the reception desk as an aside. But they said, Mr. Miller's in his room. And the Stasi looked at me and I said, no, I'm, I actually am Mr. Miller. And so they took me upstairs and they, they shoved the key in the door and opened the door to hear a muffled squeak was from the inside. It turned out that um, a fellow uh, female reporter and uh, an American friend of hers had decided that, well, Peter probably isn't going to use his room tonight, so we'll borrow it. And there was a great deal of embarrassment all around. <laughs> and in terms of being expelled, I mean, again, you know, Ian and I read this in a lot of spy books. I mean, did they frog march you to Schoenfeld or to a crossing point and kicked you out? How does it actually work? Oh, yes. Yeah. Very much this, in fact, the, the embarrassment in the room turned out to be a very good thing because in my uh, the pocket of one of my um, jackets that I wasn't wearing, there were the identity papers, the necessary identity papers for West Germany for um, one of my friends from uh, Metzeg, Bebel's daughter, Kirsten. And she and her boyfriend had gone to Poland and got out of the country like they had been taken out on the train that went through East Germany without stopping, but without having been very, very Germanist, without having the necessary um, social security cards to show they paid their pay. Their, paid their dues to the East German Social Security. They couldn't get anything in West Germany. And, and had the East Germans fund, they would, they would have taken them off me. But they just threw me out to get the whole, they were so embarrassed by the business in the, in the bedroom that they just took me to the border. And literally, they, they took me in a car as far as the border and then just frog-marched me out, out and that was it. Um, and I thought, that's the end of the story. Um, and then that's what happened. So, that, so that I was then working for the Sunday Times, obviously, and so that the... Uh, uh, um, foreign people in London they said well you're not really going to get back in um, and I was thinking oh dear you know, it's been a hectic year this has been 99 I've been everywhere um, in, in Eastern Europe on a regular basis I was spending two weeks on the road two days at home two weeks on the road two days at home I'm thinking that well at least I can sort of sit and see my, my, my wife and two sons at this stage they said well actually you know this, it's Namibia is going to be independent next week so the next thing I knew was on a flight to Vintook wow. and um, while I was there an Italian photographer friend of mine said you know that's a great story Peter you should stay we're, we're going to get to see all the stuff that happens when the independence ceremony comes through and I thought mm-hmm. I don't know. I just think something might happen in Germany. I'm going to go back. And thank God I did, because it was only four days later that the wall came down. And luckily enough then, too, the fact that I have both a British passport and an Irish passport means that I pulled out the other one. And so much for the great German efficiency of these Germans, they didn't notice that that wasn't the one that had been expelled. Wow. Did, did, you, did you see the collapse of the GDR coming? Or was oh, this a big shock? No, no. no. Nobody saw it coming. Nobody saw it coming at all. Um, I mean, it was an accident. Uh, I mean, I'd see, I'd been working in Poland um, and I'd seen what had happened there, but we all thought Poland was a special case. And then Hungary was a slightly special case because they also, they already practiced Dulaj communism. It wasn't very strict. And they, and Hungarians could travel to Austria relatively freely. Um, so, and, and then it started to happen in, in Czechoslovakia, as there was. And that was a, that was a bit of a surprise because they were pretty hardline, but, but nobody could see what happened in, in the GDI. It just, it really wasn't foreseeable. And, and the actual fall of the war was, it was an accident. You know, they just meant to say we were going to let people out on, on visas. They, mm. they did, it was only when the, the force of the, the force of people at the wall that night they realised they couldn't they couldn't force them to stay back and there were there were thousands thousands 
Did you see the movie? Uh, did you watch the movie Bornholmer Strasse, Peter? Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah. Well, Bornholmer Strasse is of course the one I talked about earlier on, with a um, you know, with with the border run along the front of the houses. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, that, that's interesting. Oh, and, and, German. Are you talking about? Yes, no, that's what we're going to do. Because I tried to get through Bornholmer Strasse first. That's I was I was up in Rostock. There was a demonstration going on in Rostock that night, and um, I was just driving back from a leisurely pace in a, in a in a rented car, and suddenly I heard they said they're opening the ball, they're opening the wall at that certain border cross. I said, it's ridiculous. And I thought, well, maybe it's not. So I ran my foot down and got as fast as I could and went straight to Bornholmer Strasse first um, because I because that was, was a crossing there. And of course I stopped and, and they, they wouldn't they wouldn't let me through. They said, I said, well, look, look, you're letting East Germans through. And they said, yes. And I said, why can't I go through? They said, well, you have a, you have a pass. You can go through Friedrichstrasse. You can checkpoint Charlie. And I thought, this is ridiculous, but I thought, well, don't stand here ordering with a border guard. It's only another 10 minutes drive down to checkpoint Charlie. And when I got there, of course, they, they, they it was heaving again. Um, but I went up to the front and it, Yogi Bear Uva was there and he said, hey, nice car. Um, you're going through there, do you? Look, it's mad through there. And I, tried, I was going to drive through. I said, well, what can I do with the car? He said, leave your car over there. I'll look after it. <laughs> you know, just, this, is, this is the hated border guard. Um, and so they let me through and I walked through the wall and uh, I had my hair tousled by loads of West Berliners, a beer shoved in my hand as if I'd never seen one then. Uh, before people saying, welcome to Freiheit, welcome to freedom. <laughs> It's a very strange night, very, very strange night. But even that night, I then, um, I sat there waiting for a while to get some uh, people to take to make a story because it was, the worst thing for me, it was a Thursday night. And if you're working for a Sunday newspaper, you hate things that happen on a Thursday night. But um, I'd waited around to find some waitresses from the hotel and dragged them down to a street corner and watched their reaction and got, got them in a taxi. And then I then left them because I suddenly saw my friends from Metzeck on the next street corner, including the ones who'd got over by Poland and the others who'd just come over that night. And we spent the entire evening uh, drinking in one of the bars. I mean, Berlin was crazy. There were people throwing fireworks. There were um, car horns blaring in every corner. Um, and then I staggered back, of course, because my hotel was in the east. So about 5.30 in the morning, I, I walked back through one of the, the open gaps in the wall. And I thought, this isn't going to last. This isn't going to last. You know, day after tomorrow, this is all going to be filled up again. Um, and that would be the end. But the funny thing was that there was the, West, the Western reporters who just arrived there and then declared this is it you know they were putting it up this is it the world the world's down forever and i was thinking no i know this place too well it won't last but there you go i am um, within the day it was impossible they just tore so much of it down that it just had to be accepted yeah it's it's interesting peter because i don't think you're the only one that thought it, it was only a temporary thing because i've interviewed a couple of people yeah. whose fathers were volkspolizei and they didn't cross until about a month or so after the wall was open because they thought that it would close again and it would obviously affect their job prospects. Absolutely. Well, Peter, I absolutely love your book and Ian and I could probably talk to you for five hours because there's lots more in, in <laughs> but I'm going to hand over it to Ian for the quick fire round because uh, I want to be respectful okay. of your time, but I really urge people to, to go out and, uh, you know, Ian will add the link in the show notes to go out and buy this book. If you're interested in the GDR and life behind the iron curtain uh, and also the life of a journalist, I, I heartily recommend people pick it up. Absolutely. And I, I, second, I second that as well. Um, so, Peter, we, we normally have a, a quick fire round and uh, you've already uh, answered one of our questions about the three people that you'd like to have a few beers with. Um, yep. but, but what's your favourite Cold War film? Well, that's, that's, that's a funny one because a, I'm going to give you a couple because uh, it, obviously, from a different area, not to do with the GDR, I always love The Third Man, um, which is you know, certain in, in Vienna at the, end, at the beginning of the Cold War. 
And I've always loved Dr. Strangelove just because it's so completely mad. However, the winner for me has to be, um, has to be Corky Park. Um, no, it's not because it's the best film. It is a good film. It was a great book. Um, but it, Gorky Park in, uh, without question, because on our, when we went to, when we were living in Moscow, um, my wife and I took our first trip back to the West as it was, and we drove to Helsinki and we parked the car and we thought, and went to bed and get up the next morning and looked out and we were back in Moscow. It was so weird. There were um, crowds of pictures everywhere. There were um, workers of the world unite. There were a whole, and we walked out on the street thinking, what's happened? So the world shifted here. And I just realized because it was winter, it was midwinter. And they, overnight, they had put up all the scenery uh, to make them uh, healthy. You look as much like Moscow as possible. And there was William Hurt in the corner in, in a, 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 a Russian police hat. And I thought, this is surreal. <laughs> so I'm afraid that that's because of the personal uh, reflection that that wins for me. No, that, that's a good choice. I haven't seen that film in a while. So uh, it's one I'll have to dust down. Ian, uh, it's interesting how many movies were actually... Uh, set in Moscow, but filmed in Helsinki, because the Kremlin letter is exactly the same. It's all set in Helsinki, but made to look like Moscow. Yeah. Well, I think Red's well, uh, the John Reed bio- biography film um, with Warren Beatty, that was filmed in Helsinki as well. There was another reason, just remember that with a lot of all of that sort of turn of the previous century architecture in, in Finland was, of course, at the time when Finland was, was part of Russia. So um, the architecture was identical. No, absolutely. Absolutely. So what piece of mu- music would you choose as your soundtrack to your time in Berlin? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, um, and there's, again, there's, there's two here because one, the first one, which is a bit corny, but it happened to be is all in all, there's just another brick in the wall, Pink Floyd. Um, and that's that, not just because of the name, but because in the um, in my first months there, that was the hit of the year. It was, it was actually the hit and it was blaring out of them all the courtyards um, across the wall from both sides because uh, there was no problem getting getting music over into the east if you knew the right people. So I was wandering around looking up at these these walls and there was Pink Floyd playing in the background. But really the one that is most it is is much later is um uh, 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 it's a really iconic um, East German song. It's now become a sort of hit all over Germany. Um, and it's called Ich bin der letzte Kunde. I, I am the last customer. Um, and it was by a group then that was called Silly. And it's it's a great it's a story of someone trying to get out of a bar late in the evening. But um, he's stuck there because he's like, I can't lose from hand. Which is saying, I can't get away from the beer tap. And my, my last lady went half a year ago, uh, half an hour ago. My last tram went half an hour ago. And I still can't get, and it's just, it's, it's, it's created, you can almost imagine playing because there's a sound of um, rattling bottles and, uh, and it goes up, you know, the barman uh, getting his car ready, um, the, the toilet ladies cleaning up behind her, and I still can't get out of here. It's, it's a great song, you have to listen to it. It's a group of silly, doesn't exist in English, I'm afraid. I'm sure we'll be able to track that one down, Peter. YouTube is a treasure trove for that sort of stuff. <laughs> it is. Um, have you got any uh, souvenirs from your time in Berlin? <laughs> loads, loads of them, loads of them. I mean, I was first attracted to uh, souvenirs when I was, before I'd ever gone to Berlin when I saw um, one of my colleagues at a bar on Fleet Street um, produce a, um, a watch. But it was after the, the revolution in Iran and he had a watch with the blood of the martyrs growing around on the face of the Ayatollah. And I thought... Wow, <laughs> I need one of these. Obviously, I didn't have the first thing I got when I was in Poland. I had a solid, solidarity, a solidarity uh, shirt with because no, no t-shirts or anything. It had been uh, the words had been printed onto a hospital uh, vest. Um, I have one of those. I have um, oh, good grief! I, I have uh, I have 
workers of the world unite banner in in, in silk, um, uh, Russian silk, which I stole from a, a communist party uh, headquarters in Lithuania after the revolution there. Um, from East Germany, I have a Berlin Asphalt, where the people protest, which came from the protests in Leipzig. Um, I also have a, a banner of the, the East German Communist Party, the SED. Um, I have a, a Freiwilliger Helfer der Volkspolizei, which is a volunteer helper of the People's Police armband. And probably, I mean, there's, I have a bit of the wall, obviously. Um, and I think my favorite thing, there was actually one that I, I didn't pick up, pinch or, or grab. I, I actually bought it in, in, in a rare time. I wish I'd bought more. It was just in the few days after the war came, a few days after the German unification, they were selling um, the uh, border post signs. So I have my, I have the one that says, Achtung, you are in the American sector. Um, you are now leaving the American sector, and it's in all four languages, French, German, Russian, and English. And they were selling it for like five euros, five marks it was at that place. And I wish I'd bought more. <laughs> and they were the official one. There were only were about 400 of them all together, and they, they just flogged them all off, and that was that. Wow. That, that sounds like a great souvenir, that one. I, uh, yeah, I, love I have that. it on the door of my office. <laughs> I, I always loved that story with Michael Rafferty, who was at Checkpoint Charlie, Ian, when he said he gave his hat to an East German border guard officer and uh, mm. swapped it. And then he had to go all the way to Stuttgart, I think, to get another one because they were, you know. <laughs> and then he went back in the street the next day and they were all on street corners selling these hats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Poor guy. No, great, great, great story, that. Um, so, obviously, there's. Um, 1989, The Berlin Wall, My Part in Its Downfall, which is a, a, a great book for people interested in Berlin during the Cold War. But are, are there any other books that you would recommend uh, that come um, Berlin? Yes, there are lots, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to recommend any of them, um, just because I, I'm mean and uh, mean-spirited. But really, because I, I, that they don't, anything that's actually done for people who were there or or people that have related afterwards, um, it doesn't feel the same thing. I mean, uh, Anna von der Stasiland is quoted a lot, and I think it is quite good, but it was done all afterwards. It was all done by um, interviews 10 years after the war came down, and there wasn't anybody else I know who really lived through it the same way. Not in English. I do. I could recommend some in German, some very good ones, um, but uh, not, not in English or translated. So I'm just going to be, um, I'm just going to hold fire on that one. No, that, that's fine. It's, it's one of Shane and mine's bugbears, and it's a real incentive for us to learn German, is that there's some great books in German do it, do about it. this period, but um, my German's yeah. not up to scratch, but I think Shane's uh, getting ahead of me with his German knowledge. And, and for your, your last um, uh, quick-fire question, um, yes, definitely. There's both a film and a TV series, both of which though, I've already mentioned. Uh, the TV series is uh, Deutschland, I Deutschland 83, um, which is just brilliant. Its depiction of East Germany is so correct. Um, not people um, crawling around dirty streets or in, in poverty, but people having um, uh, barbecues with beer and sausages. Um, and you can do that. And, it's, and it's, all about, it's all about the Cold War and deeply between the two, the two Germanys. It's a great, and I'm, I'm very much looking forward to 86, which I expect in the next 12 months or so. And again, then the film is obviously Life of Others, Lives of Others, um, and that's, that was all done afterwards, but it's so exact. And I'm sure you've seen it, but um, the, a, the, the, the flat of the chief protagonist in the film, who's a, the playwright, is an almost carbon copy of, um, of mine. <laughs> it's, it's so recognizable in every way. 
Wow. I, I think they're great recommendations. Um, the other one, I, I'm not sure if you've seen it, uh, called The Same Sky, Peter. No, actually, I haven't seen that. I know about that's it. A um, that's a good one. That's worth watching. And, and I particularly like that because the two Stasi agents who are, one's a Romeo agent and they're in West Berlin. There was one scene where they were talking about why they're doing what they're doing. And, you know, a lot of the English language productions, the Stasi guys have been, you know, blackmailed into it. They've got their sister or, you know, their, their child won't go to university if they don't uh, work for the Stasi. Whereas these two guys believed in the German Democratic Republic. So it was a lot more realistic for me um, in that viewpoint. And then there's also the story about drugs in sports, which is, you know, very sad. So season one is available on, on Netflix. Uh, I, I think yeah, you right. and um, another one that came out uh, that's worth a watch. Now it is one of these kind of alternate history. Like I don't really do science fiction, uh, but this one was good called Counterpart. Are you familiar with that one? No, not familiar. No, I do do science fiction, so it's oh, you love it then. So it's a basically about a uh, a crossing that basically goes into a different world. It's all set in Berlin in you know uh, modern day, and it's a, a different whole world that's created, which is a mirror image of the Berlin, but in a whole different dimension. And it's a spy, it's an espionage, it's a whodunit, it's a thriller. Uh, great cast, a lot of German actors in it. I, I think you'll enjoy it. Counterpart. Oh, I will, I will. I shall look forward. I shall probably look, look, watch that over the next few days. <laughs> I'll, I'll drop you an email with the links. Thank you. Peter, I really appreciate your time tonight. That has been really interesting. And hopefully, um, well, no, not hopefully, I'm sure that has whetted people's appetite to uh, read your book. Thank you very much. Honour to speak to you, Peter. Thank you. Well, that's the end of Peter's Berlin story, but we're hoping to get him back again to talk about his time in Moscow and Cuba. I'd like to give special thanks to our friends at the GDR Radio podcast for assisting in the production of this episode, and we hope this is one of many future collaborations with them. I do heartily recommend Peter's book. There's loads more detail as well as stories we didn't cover in the podcast. Details of the book and some video are available in the show notes at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 40. If you like what you're listening to, do join our Facebook discussion group where there's loads of Cold War information Further discussions with our listeners and guests. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. And we're also on Twitter at Cold War Pod. Lastly, if you like what you're hearing, do leave reviews on iTunes or share us via social media. It really helps to increase awareness of the podcast. Thank you very much for listening and supporting us. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.